We welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'd like to invite you to turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin reading in verse 50. We've been engaged in this study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we came to the 15th chapter, and the doctrine of the resurrection was in doubt by those who were within the church, false teachers. There were those who were teaching that there was no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. And as Paul summed it up, that if our hope in Christ is in this life only, in other words, if there's no resurrection life to look forward to, then he said, we're of all men most miserable. He makes many valid points in this chapter, and we've looked at them. First of all, we looked at the proofs of the resurrection that are listed for us in verses 1 through 11. And then we looked at the primary doctrine of the resurrection. We understand that the resurrection is not something that is up for debate. It is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. We noted that in verses 12 through 19. We noted that the doctrine of the resurrection is a powerful truth. It demonstrates Christ's power in redemption and in restoring not only our lives and our souls, but God's creation back to its original, uh, its, 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 its original state and handing that back to God, the Father, the gift of the Son, to the Father. So we understand that God has a purpose in the resurrection. Then we noted the practical truth of the resurrection and how it impacts the doctrine of salvation. If there is no resurrection, then why should anyone be saved? And then how it impacts our Christian service. Why would we labor? Why would we work and minister if there is no resurrection? There's nothing to look forward to uh, beyond this life? And then why uh, would we seek to be holy, to be sanctified? So this doctrine of the resurrection is, is very practical. And then we noted in verses 36 and uh, moving forward to verse 49, we noted the, the body, the resurrection body, and what that body will be like. Well, Paul summarizes and concludes uh, these, these, uh, his argument, if you would, uh, for the doctrine of the resurrection as he presents it to us in uh, conclusion and in concluding form here in verses 50 through 58. So we'll read these verses together and then we'll note some things and we'll look at this theme tonight, the victory of the resurrection. The victory of the resurrection. Look, if you would, please, in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. 
Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Notice if you would in verse 57, Paul states this, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. I'm glad we have the victory tonight. I'm glad that as we live in this world, this world of death as we noted this morning when David said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he said, I will fear no evil. We live in a world filled with sin. We live in a world of death. And these bodies that we inhabit are bodies that are subject to sin and death. But thanks be unto God that he has given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. By the way, we could not earn the victory. We could not win the victory. There's only one conqueror, and we are more than conquerors through him. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He won the victory for us. He won the victory over sin. He won the victory over death. He won the victory over the grave. And he has bestowed upon all who believe upon him, he has made us victors, conquerors with him. And tonight, as we think of the doctrine of the resurrection, we are victorious. What a blessing. What a promise. So I want you to note some things about the victory of the resurrection tonight. First of all, I want you to see the transformation that we will experience. The transformation that we will experience. Now, this transformation is necessary. Look, if you would, please, in verse 50. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. You and I cannot achieve our own salvation, and you and I, in the state that we are in, though we are redeemed, if you know the Lord is your Savior, we are living in a house of flesh and blood. And this house is a corruptible house. This house is a mortal house. Uh, we have bodies that are corrupted uh, by sin, the sin nature, the old man still warring against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. Uh, we're in this battle. We're in this, this conflict that is taking place. Paul noted it by saying this, O wretched man that I am, who should deliver me? from this body of death. Was Paul saved? Absolutely, he was saved. Was Paul serving the Lord? Absolutely, he was serving the Lord. But he had a body of death that we, he inhabited. And that body of death resisted the things of God. That body of death was in conflict uh, with uh, the work of the Spirit in his life. He said, I want to do good, 
I want to do good because the Holy Spirit's living in me. Because I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. So I want to do good. But I have a problem. Though I want to do good, I don't do it. And he said, I don't want to do wrong because the Spirit of God convicts me. But though I don't want to do wrong, I still find myself messing up. Can you identify? So in the state we are in, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot dwell in heaven. So a change must be, uh, a, a change must occur. A change must take place. A transformation, if you would. So he says, behold, I show you a mystery. He's going to reveal something new to the church at Corinth. We shall not all sleep. Not every believer will die. Now, it is appointed, we understand, for man wants to die. But when the Lord comes, not every believer will be dead. There will be many believers alive at the coming of the Lord. Now, the Lord's coming is in two phases. The first is the rapture of the church, and the second is the return of Christ. What we're speaking of here in these verses is the rapture of the church. This is the mystery that Paul is revealing in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We will be changed, those who are alive at the coming of the Lord will be changed. They will not experience the resurrection from the dead that the dead in Christ will experience. But at the coming of the Lord, they will experience a change. So therefore, whether you, are, uh, whether you have died at the coming of the Lord or whether you are alive at the coming of the Lord, the Bible says, we shall all be changed. Somebody said that was the motto for the nursery. We shall all be changed. The nursery workers say, well, hopefully not all. But we shall all be changed. Now he goes on to explain this change and when it takes place. Because some might think, well, if we're not all going to sleep, then some may live forever. Some may not experience death. Well, he's speaking in particular then of the coming of the Lord in the rapture. And he speaks of it here in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So he's speaking of an event that is future. That event is the rapture of the church. Now, it will happen suddenly, in a moment. Jesus said, in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. In a moment, how quickly? In the twinkling of an eye, at the speed of light, we'll be taken. We won't have time to react. We won't have time to undo the things that need to be undone. We won't have time to confess the sins that need to be confessed. We won't have time to tell our friends and loved ones the message of the gospel that we should have shared with them beforehand because in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump for the trumpet, shall sound. That's the return of the Lord in phase one, the rapture of the church. This is what he's speaking of. It's a mystery. It's something that had not been revealed. It is something that God by his spirit gave to the apostle Paul. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. At the rapture, the dead shall be raised. Those graves are going to burst open. 
Now, the dead are already with Christ. But to give evidence of his resurrection, the evidence of his return, the dead are going to raise. I stood in the graveyard not too long ago uh, visiting my uh, family's cemetery plots and where my dad is buried, where my grandparents are buried. And uh, as I stood there and as I, I read those gravestones, uh, my great-grandparents, who I didn't have the privilege of knowing and meeting on my mother's side, my great-grandparents on my father's side, who I remember as just a little boy when they died. I remember being there at the cemetery uh, when they were buried. I've been to a lot of funerals in that cemetery. And I was standing there with my son, and the truth of the resurrection came over me. And I said to him, one day, this graveyard is going to be broken open. The gravekeepers are going to have a hard time then. The guys who got to mow are going to have a difficult time because the ground's going to bust open. I don't know what's going to happen to those caskets. I'll be, well, I won't be here to find out, but maybe we'll get a glimpse of it. But graves all across this world are going to burst open. And the dead in Christ are coming out of those graves. And then we who are alive and remain, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. We'll be caught up together with them and we will ever be with the Lord. Then he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, wherefore comfort ye one another with these words. But notice this. In the process of, his, of this trumpet sounding and the process of the rapture, when the dead are raised, here's what happens to those who are, who are alive at the coming of the Lord who know Jesus. They shall be changed. They're ascending up into the heavens and they're going to be with the Lord. Man, that'll be a trip, won't it? That'll be something to behold. And automatically, as they're ascending... They shall be changed. All your gray hair will turn back to color. Isn't that good? All your lost hair will be restored. Hallelujah. The aches and pains are gone. The wrinkles are gone. I hope the extra weight is gone. Wouldn't that be a blessing? The glorified body? Yes, because it'll be incorruptible. We shall be changed. A transformation will take place. What a glorious transformation. In corruption, he says, notice in verse 53, this change. For this corruptible, that means this decaying body, this body that is prone to sin, this sin nature that wars within us, It'll be changed to an incorruptible new nature. Oh, not really a new nature. We've got that nature within us already. But there won't be an old nature. The incorruptible will be removed. Or the corruptible, rather, will be removed. And we will put on incorruption. We'll put on an incorrupt body. One that cannot be affected by sin or disease. No more doctor's appointments. Read Revelation 21 and 22. No more death. And then immortality. No more death. No more dying. That's the transformation that we will experience. Then secondly, I want you to notice the triumph that we will enjoy. 
we'll be transformed, but there also will be a triumph. The coming of the Lord is a triumphant thing. The resurrection of the dead is a triumphant thing. Notice in verse 54, so when this corruptible must shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, when that happens, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There's no more death. Would you go with me to the book of Romans chapter 5? Would you turn there with me? Just go back just a few pages from 1 Corinthians, Romans chapter 5. And Paul is speaking here of the universal condition of sin. He's speaking of the fact that we are all born with the sin nature, the sons of Adam. And in Romans 5 and verse 12, he says this, Wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon, would you say the next two words with me? All men. All men have taken on, have received, have inherited this sin nature. And as a result of that sin, we are all, though we have physical life, we are people who are dying every day physically. We are people who uh, were born dead spiritually. So we are born in a manner, spiritually speaking, as stillborn children. We don't have spiritual life. Notice what Paul says here in verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Notice that phrase, death reigned. Death has the dominion. Death had the victory. As we read in Hebrews 9 and verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die. All of us are under the curse of sin and death. Therefore, because we are all sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we are all under the curse of death, for the wages of sin is death. So Paul is speaking here, and he says, in verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Look at verse 17. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Again, we're told that death reigns. Death has the victory. Verse 21, that as sin hath reigned unto death, Death has its dominion over us. But in the resurrection, the dominion of death is overthrown. Christ has won the victory. Therefore, he says, uh, back to verse 54 of 1 Corinthians uh, 15, he says, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There'll be no more funeral homes, no more diseases, no more graves. Death is swallowed up in victory. The victorious conqueror that death is, the looming enemy that shadows over us will be defeated and is defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the words in verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Paul is hearkening back to the words of Hosea 
in Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14 where he says this, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will, deem, I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Paul is using that phrase that God, uh, God spoke to his people through the prophet Hosea. God is using that, and the apostle Paul is using that here to explain to us the victory that has been won over death and over the grave. Notice again verse 55 of 1 Corinthians. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? There'll be a song on that day when the trumpet sounds. The trumpet's going to set the song in motion. John Phillips tells us just a little bit about that song and who's singing what lines. There are two lines there. O death, where is thy sting? You know who sings that? Well, that's those who are alive at the coming of the Lord. They didn't experience death, did they? No, but they're going to be changed on the way up. And on the way up to meet the, uh, meet the Lord in the clouds, what are they singing? They're singing, oh, death, where is thy sting? And then those who have come just a moment before them out of the graves, do you know what they're singing? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? You see, when a team wins, they usually get together after the game and sing a song of victory. And we have a song of victory to sing. This is it. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? I think we'll sing that for all eternity, don't you? What a glorious song that God has given to us. And then we see in verse 56, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Well, Jesus has taken the sting away, hasn't he? That's what Hosea is saying in Hosea 13 and verse 14. The picture is of a serpent, and the serpent has the venom. And as the serpent makes its bite, it penetrates the flesh, and the venom uh, is, is transmitted into the victim. But Jesus has defeated the serpent, has he not? He said in, in the book of Genesis, he said the serpent will bruise his heel, but he, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. The victory has been won by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sting of death is sin. What did Jesus Christ do? He defeated sin. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Satan met him in the wilderness, and he tempted him three times in the wilderness. He tempted him in the same fashion that we are. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. He tempted him in, in all three of those points. <coughs> Excuse me. And how did the Lord answer in all three of those points? By the way, God has not tempted, has not allowed us to be tempted above that we are able, but has with the temptation made a way of escape. What is our way of escape? It is looking to Christ, it is looking to the Word of God. We arm ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ, when battling Satan, when faced with that temptation, he gave the devil, he gave him the sword, he quoted him the word of God, and he teaches us how to handle temptation. Jesus Christ overcame sin. The strength of sin is the law. The law. What does the law do? Well, Paul tells us that the law is our schoolmaster. The law is our teacher. And what does the law teach us? The law teaches us 
that we have violated God's holy standards. The law teaches us that we are sinners. The law reveals to us God's righteousness and it reveals to us our sinfulness. And by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. There is no person who can keep the law because if we break any point of the law in any way, in any commandment, then we are all lawbreakers. And that's what the Bible has concluded. That's what the law has concluded. And so when the law is given to us, uh, when we are confronted with the truth of the law, we recognize that we are lawbreakers, that we have violated the law. And as such, we are guilty and we are condemned. But Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. And Jesus Christ died and shed his blood to make the atonement for our sin. And therefore, as we learned this morning, his righteousness is imputed to our account. Therefore, we are no longer guilty. We are no longer condemned. We are no longer sinners and lawbreakers. We are in Christ righteous. He fulfilled the law for us. He overcame sin. He overcame death. He fulfilled the law and he imputes to us that righteousness and we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God. This is how Paul concludes that thought. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. He has come to give us life more abundant and he has come to deliver us from the penalty and the power of sin. One day we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. That'll be a blessed day, won't it? So there's two thoughts we've looked at. Number one, the transformation we will experience at the coming of the Lord. The dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We'll be changed on the way up. What a glorious transformation. Number two, the triumph that we will enjoy. Victory over sin and death. The curse is broken. Death no more has dominion over us. And then thirdly, the truth that we must embrace. The truth that we must embrace. We see it in verse 58. Therefore, because of the victory that is ours, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now Paul has painstakingly in 1 Corinthians 15 taken us and taken the Corinthians through the proofs of the resurrection. He has taught us how primary and how essential it is. He has taught us that God has revealed and is continuing to reveal his power through the resurrection and how practical it is. He's, talking, he's, he's taking us uh, through uh, the dynamics of the, the, the resurrection body and, and how that, that change will be uh, affected in our lives. He has reassured us and given us confidence in the truth of the resurrection. And therefore, we must embrace that truth and that will change our perspective as we move forward. He says, therefore, because we understand that the resurrection is true, therefore, my beloved brethren, 
There's something we do having this knowledge. He says, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, look at verse 30. When Paul, in his, in his uh, presentation, in his logic, as he's speaking concerning the resurrection, in, in verse 30, he says, If there is no resurrection, then why stand we in jeopardy every hour? If there's no resurrection, why would we put our lives at risk? Now, remember, Paul had, Paul had placed his life on the line many times. He says in verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, why bother serving the Lord? If there's no resurrection, why put our lives on the line? If there's no resurrection, let's just go home and have a nice meal and enjoy the rest of our lives and take care of ourselves. That's what Paul is saying. But the truth is there is a resurrection. And knowing that then, Paul said, we, we, cannot, we cannot accept that teaching. Therefore, knowing that the resurrection is true, then that ought to motivate us to serve the Lord. Can I ask you a question this evening? What motivates you to serve the Lord? What motivates you? Well, it ought to be, number one, a love of Christ, right? The love of Christ constraineth us. If we love the Lord Jesus, we will desire to serve him, to worship him, to please him, to be engaged in his work. Remember, if there's no resurrection, there's no point to working. But because there is a resurrection, because Christ has arisen from the dead and given us the victory, then there is a reason for us to work. There's a labor for us to do. By the way, when we, after that event of the rapture, the next event for the believer will be the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand before him and we will give an account for what we have done with the opportunity he has given to us. It'll be a time of regret for those who have not served the Lord faithfully. Our works will be examined. And those works done in the flesh, those works uh, that, that, that of disobedience, will be consumed by fire. But it'll also be a time of reward because that which we have done for Christ in the power of his spirit and in obedience to his word, we will receive rewards. And so friends, we labor here on this earth with the expectation of obtaining rewards from Christ, of pleasing him. And what will we do with those rewards? Will we build a trophy case and say, look at what I did? Absolutely not. We will, with a heart of gratitude, give back to Christ those rewards. And the tragedy will be for those who are empty-handed, who have nothing or very little to offer Christ. And so the judgment seat of Christ is before us. We will give an account for what we have done with the opportunity that God has given to us. And with that knowledge, Paul says this, be steadfast. The word steadfast means this, settled in your belief. 
Settled in your belief. Be steadfast. Don't, don't be carried about with every wind of doctrine. Don't be, don't be spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit that, that, that is given to us after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Be settled. Be settled in the truth that the Word of God, our Bible, is true. That the doctrines that have been given to us are doctrines that we hold to and we believe. Be settled in who Christ is. Be settled that eternity is real, heaven is real, and that we will give an account to the Lord Jesus for the works that we uh, have done or have failed to do. So he says, be ye steadfast. Then he says, be unmovable. That means to be firm and secure in your conviction. Unmovable. Unmovable. What does it take to move us? A discouraging word, a bad day, a lack of appreciation, opposition, criticism. What does it take to move us? Well, I used to serve, but I got hurt. Jesus was hurt for you. Do you know that no matter how badly someone may hurt you, no one will ever hurt you to the degree that your sin hurt the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he loved you and he went to the cross for you. He endured the shame. He endured the contradiction of sinners against himself for the joy that was set before him. So be steadfast, be unmovable, be firm and be fixed in your conviction and in your service. Notice what he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, be plentiful, be excessive in your work, in your labors for Christ. Serve the Lord. There should be no unemployment in the work of God, right? There should be no unemployment among God's people. Everybody has a job to do. We are all called to serve the Lord. So let's get engaged. Let's get involved. Let's understand that our life is just a vapor. It's here for a short time and it passeth away. We must work the works of him that sent us while it is day. For the night cometh when no man can work. We only have just a few more opportunities to fill this choir and sing for the glory of God. We have just a few more opportunities to go out and witness and tell people about Jesus. We have just a few more opportunities to teach that Sunday school lesson or to preach that message. We just have a few more opportunities. Let's maximize them. Let's do what we can for Christ while we can. For His glory. And don't let anything dissuade you. Don't let a bad attitude or uh, some critical remark or some lack of appreciation or some hurt feeling keep you from serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Serve him with all your heart. Why? Because he saved you. He's delivered you from death. He's giving you a home in heaven. He's laying aside for you that old corruptible body and putting on an incorrupt one. So serve the Lord with gladness. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, I think one of Satan's chief tactics is to tell us that what we're doing is not making any difference. That's a lie of the devil. Let me give you a, a, a really good East Tennessee word, hogwash. Sometimes I preach sermons and I go home and I, I wallow in self-pity and tell my wife how terrible it was. 
somebody invariably will send me a text and say some kind thing about how God used his word in their lives. You see what I'm reminded of? I'm just a servant. I'm not a performer on a stage. This isn't about me trying to build a reputation or be acclaimed and be loved. This is about me telling people about Jesus. It's about him being acclaimed. It's about his reputation. It's about people being devoted to him. And you see, friend, we have the opportunity and privilege to tell people about Jesus and point them to him. And may God help us to know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. His word will accomplish the thing whereunto he has sent it. So let's just labor. Let's labor in that class. Let's keep teaching those children the Bible. Let's keep singing in the choir for the glory of God. Let's keep working in the sound booth and on the cameras. Let's do our job for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not allow Satan to diminish our view of Christian service and to tie our hands and keep us from serving our Lord. Let's do all that we can. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The victory of the resurrection. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.